morning, everyone, and welcome to our service this morning. It's nice to hear everybody's happy chatter and visiting together. Let's stand and worship God together. Yeah. 
for your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the goodness that you have been bestowed on us in so many ways. Just pray that as we listen to your word and song and in the message, and as, uh, as we go through the service, we just pray that you will continue to bless and speak to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is with Rod. I am reading from Acts uh, chapter 23, reading the whole chapter. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. When Paul said to him, God will strike you, you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest. Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler to your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brother, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on, the, on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no res resurrection, and that there are no, neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the, the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has broke, spoken to him? And the dispute came, became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and take him away from them by force and bring him into the, bar the barracks. The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin, petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called out one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the com commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. 
The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and said, asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a, de 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 get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to the governor, Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Ex Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man is, was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with troops and re rescued him. And I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I want to know why they are accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present you, you their case against him. So the soldiers carried out their orders, took Paul with them during the night, and brought him as far as Antipatrius. The, the, day, the next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what providence he was from learning that he was from Sicilia. He said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Thanks, Rod. It's a long passage I gave you this morning. <laughs> but you read it well. Thank you. Let's open it. Or ask God to guide us as we look into this passage. Uh, this is bound prayer. Lord, I just uh, want to ask you that uh, you would just draw near to each one of us. We know you are near to each one of us, but uh, that we would uh, just open our minds to the fact that uh, you are here and we're, we are here to hear what you have to say to us. And 
Lord, we're probably all here coming from different spots in our personal lives. We've got different stuff going on uh, the week ahead or different stuff that we came through this past week. And uh, everybody's probably different. But Lord, we've come together here to fellowship with your people and to hear your word. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help me to speak it as it should be spoken, as you would have it spoken, and that you would take it and use it to feed us who are listening and wanting to hear from you. Uh, just take your word and use it to speak to us, to feed us, to guide us, to challenge us if that's needed. Uh, and, Lord, just to be strengthened and fed by you this morning. We pray in your name. The only survivor of a shipwreck uh, washed up on a small uninhabited island and he cried out to God to save him and every day he scanned the horizon for help for someone to rescue him but no help seemed to be coming and during this time he managed to build a rough hut for a shelter that he could sleep in and get out of the weather and house some of these few little things that he managed to save with him when he was shipwrecked. And he continued praying the whole time that God would save him and nothing seemed to be happening. One day he was out, he was hunting for food around this island and he came back to find that his little hut had burned up. And smoke rolling up into the sky and it was just the worst thing worst thing that could have happened to him uh, no rescue in sight now his hut is burned up and just nothing early the next day though a ship drew near the island and he was rescued and he asked the crew after he got on the ship how did you know I was here and uh, they replied well we saw your smoke signal and so we knew you were here, so we came to get you. As Christians, we know, of course, that God is sovereign and that God is in control. The Bible says that. We've been taught that. But that's hard to see during the hard times. It's hard to understand how God can be in control when everything is seemingly going so wrong and so opposite to what God would want. We know in our heads that God is in control, that he has a plan. But exactly how does he carry out his plan when it seems like those working against God are gaining the upper hand? The passage we come to today in our series through the book of Acts uh, speaks to this subject. We've seen in the past few weeks, in the past few chapters of Acts, how the Holy Spirit directed Paul to go to Jerusalem. We've looked at that. And then we've also seen at the same time the same Holy Spirit warning Paul that bad things are going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And that prompted Paul's companions and his fellow Christians to advise Paul to not even go to Jerusalem. And as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, Paul did go to Jerusalem. He was determined. He was convinced that God had directed him to Jerusalem. So he went against the advice of his companions because he's convinced that God wanted him to go there. 
And so Paul did go to Jerusalem, and bad things did happen to him in Jerusalem. Uh, a riot broke out against him based on false accusations from, from, from uh, some Jews from Asia. Roman soldiers rescued Paul from the rioters, escorted Paul up to the stairs to their barracks. Located there, those barracks were kind of right at the corner of, of the temple courtyard. Um, Paul received permission from the Roman commander to speak to the crowd. The crowd quieted down to listen. Paul then told them the story of how he, a Pharisee just like them, having the same feelings about Jesus as they did, same feelings against Jesus' followers as they did. He told the story of how he, how, how he came to believe that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. And the crowd listened, and they stayed quiet until Paul told them that God had sent him to the Gentiles. And at that, this crowd lost it again, and the riot continued, and Paul was taken safely up to the Roman barracks. So that brings us to chapter 23 we're looking at today. All the stuff I just went through uh, was last week. <laughs> Those of you who were here last week will remember that. So chapter 23, where we are today. Let's, again, very quickly go through this passage so we all understand what's going on. We all have a clear picture. And then we'll make the application. It's not going to take long. It's a uh, pretty straightforward passage. So the last verse of chapter 22 tells us that the next day the Roman commander called an assembly of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Some of your translations say Jewish council. Uh, he brought Paul to them to try to figure out what this big upheaval about, is about. What's the riot about? What's your problem with this guy Paul? So chapter 23 then picks up the story and continues it on. Paul's in front of the Sanhedrin now, and he starts his defense before them by saying that he had lived his life with a perfectly good conscience before God until this day. Meaning that Paul had always strived to live in accordance with all that he believed God had commanded and wanted from him. Even before he became a Christian, and doing what he did to persecute the church. He was doing what he believed God wanted him to do at that point. And then upon realizing the truth of Jesus. And how that fit in with God's word and God's promises. He put his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Because he saw that was part of God's plan. And what God wanted him to do. And his bringing to the gospel to the Gentiles. Was him acting in obedience to God. So that's why Paul said, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God until now. But the high priest Ananias took exception to that and ordered Paul be struck on the mouth. Ananias, history tells us, was a high priest at that time, was a, yeah, was not a good guy. He was a bit of a hothead, a bit of a firecracker, and he went off in tangents. He was also a bit of a crook. He would take money that... From the tithes to the temple, he'd take it for his own use. He's a very wealthy man. But anyway, so that's Ananias. He heard Paul say that. He ordered Paul to be struck on the mouth. How dare he say something like that? He'd lived his life with a perfectly good conscience. But Paul fired right back at, at the high priest. Paul said, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Sit there and try to judge me and try me according to the law and a violation of the law? Have me struck? And then some other members of the Sanhedrin there shot back at Paul there. Verse 4, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul replied, verse 5, oh, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest, for it is written. 
you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So why Paul didn't recognize that Ananias was the high priest, we simply don't know. We're not told. Uh, we can make some guesses, but that's just what they would be. They would be guesses. But at any rate, Paul didn't know that Ananias was the high priest when he made that comment, and the implication is there he probably wouldn't have made that comment if he had known that Ananias was the high priest. But at this point, I think Paul realized that he was not going to get anywhere with this Sanhedrin. And so Paul took another line of defense. He knew the Sanhedrin was made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees. That was the makeup of the Jewish, Jewish high, or Sanhedrin. The Sadducees had the majority of people in the Sanhedrin, but the Pharisees, they were a minority part, but they had very powerful and influential positions. And so Paul used that then to his advantage. And so then he cried out in verse 6, uh, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, of Pharisees, I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the from the dead. They believed in angels. They believed there were spirits, both good and bad. Uh, Sadducees, they didn't believe in any of those things. Paul knew that the Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. So when Paul, in saying that, he got the Pharisees behind him, and that divided the Sanhedrin, and again, things started getting violent. And the Roman commander at this point realized they're not going to get anywhere, so they took Paul again back to the barracks. And that night, Jesus appeared to Paul and assured him that all was going to go according to plan. All was going according to plan. And he said, just as you testified about me in Jerusalem, you will testify about me in Rome also. But the Jews were so intent on putting Paul to death that a group of them, it says more than 40, uh, they made a vow that they wouldn't eat anything until they had put Paul to death. So they went to the chief priests, made a plan with the chief priests. Or they had a plan and they presented the plan to the chief priests. And their plan was, request the Roman commander to bring Paul before them again the next day so they could have a little more thorough investigation. And while they're bringing Paul, these guys would be lying in wait and they would kill Paul before he even got there. That was a plan and the plot was made. And they got ready. But word of this plot got out to some of Paul's family. Uh, Paul's nephew, the son of his sister, <coughs> got wind of this and went to Paul and told him. So then Paul asked one of the centurions, he said, take, take my nephew here to the commander. He has something important to tell him. So he did, and Paul's nephew told the Roman commander all about the plot. And so the Roman commander then decided he needed to get Paul out of town. So he told the nephew, don't say anything to anyone. And he gave the command to take Paul with a huge armed escort to Caesarea during the night. Caesarea is about 50-ish miles northwest of Jerusalem. And most importantly, that was where Governor Felix was headquartered. Uh, Felix was the Roman governor of Judea at that time, and his headquarters were there in Caesarea. So, 9 o'clock in the evening, they started out. And I'm just amazed at the size of this armed guard for one man. 
Two centurions, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I guess he wanted to make sure that no group of 40 Jews is going to get at Paul. So that's just incredible to me. Now the Roman commander, and uh, we find out here, he wrote this letter, so we find out there that what his name is, the Roman commander, his name is Claudius Lysias. <laughs> um, he wrote a letter addressed to Felix explaining the whole thing and why he decided to send Paul to him for trial. That letter's there, you can read that letter, verses 26 and following to 30. So off they went, and they got as far that night as the little village of Antipatris. It's a little more than halfway to Caesarea. Uh, they stayed there for the night, the rest of the night, and the next day, soldiers and the spearmen, they went back to Jerusalem, leaving the horsemen to take Paul the rest of the way to Caesarea. They got Paul to Felix, gave Felix a letter. Felix read the letter from the Roman commander. He then asked Paul what province he was from. And Paul answered, Cilicia. He's from Tarsus in Cilicia. Tarsus is the name of the city, Cilicia. We saw that earlier on that he's from, the city was Tarsus, but um, Cilicia is a province. Well, that was within Felix's jurisdiction, so Felix told Paul he would give him a hearing when his accusers showed up. And in the meantime, Paul was kept there in that complex that housed the Roman governor there in Caesarea. So that brings us to the end of the chapter. And as I said, it's a story of how things on the surface are looking like Paul's ministry is going to be cut short, but in reality, God's plan is moving forward. And it speaks to us of how God moves, often behind the scenes, to keep his plan going. That's where I'm going with the sermon here. <laughs> Let's look at it. As Christians, we need to have an understanding of how God moves his plan along. And we can gain a better understanding of this by studying the ways God moves his plan along as come out here in this chapter of Acts 23. So three things I want to bring out. Number one, God often uses spirit-guided human wisdom. God often uses spirit-guided human wisdom. In preparing for this sermon, I read some commentators that felt that Paul was not right in saying what he did there in verse 6. Where he cried out, I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. I felt Paul wasn't right to say that. It divided the Sanhedrin and it got them stirred up and violence was about to break out. Paul should have kept quiet like Jesus did when he was on trial before this Sanhedrin, some 20 years before this. Thought about it, prayed about it, <laughs> read through this again. I don't agree with that. I believe Paul's statement here was Paul using the wisdom God gave him to deal with the situation that he was in. Paul knew how the Sanhedrin worked. He knew the makeup of the Sanhedrin. He knew the theological differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He knew he was not going to get any fair trial here. And his life was on the line. God had already revealed to Paul that he was going to go to Rome. We've seen that in previous chapters. God had already revealed that to him. And so Paul cried out, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. I'm on trial here for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. 
As I said earlier, that statement got the Pharisee element of the Sanhedrin on his side, and it effectively divided the Sanhedrin so the hearing could not proceed. But think about how profound that statement was. I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you look back a bit, what got both the Sadducees and the Pharisees upset at Paul was his preaching that Jesus was the Messiah and how Jesus rose from the dead and sent him to tell the good news to the Gentiles. Both Sadducees and Pharisees were really upset at Paul about that. That was the thing. That's why they wanted to kill him, because that was blasphemous in their mind. Now, the Pharisees believed in a general resurrection of the dead at the end, when God would restore the kingdom to them. But they certainly did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But Paul here, by implication, put those two things together. He believed in the resurrection of the dead, and that included believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul put that belief in the general resurrection of the dead at the end, put it together with Jesus rising from the dead. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, we look at that passage almost every Easter. A great passage that Paul writes to the Corinthian church about the resurrection. If you read that chapter, you see Paul teaching there that the two go together. If the dead are not raised, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, then Jesus hasn't risen either. And if Jesus has risen, then the dead are raised also. So I see an implication in Paul's statement here. I'm not sure if the Pharisees picked up on it or not. But to believe, the implication is to believe in the resurrection of the dead means that it's not out of the question to believe that Jesus did rise from the dead. And if Jesus did rise from the dead, then that means that he's the Messiah. So that statement of Paul, I think, was a was very, very loaded statement. It had profound implications. So Paul used his God-given wisdom when he made that statement. And it hung the Sanhedrin, and he got out of that situation where his life was on the line. But it wasn't just human wisdom that Paul used. It was Holy Spirit-guided human wisdom. Human wisdom on its own can only go so far. Because our human wisdom is affected by the sin nature in each one of us. But God does give us brains. And he gives us wisdom. And God expects us to use it. And then as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And as we yield control to him, he will guide our thinking and guide our words. The Bible promises that. I'd like you to turn to James chapter 1 verse 5, please. In your Bible. James chapter 1 verse 5. Let's read that, that passage. James 1 verse 5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives all to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. When you need wisdom, James writes there, 
pray and ask God to give it. Ask God to give you wisdom. And the promise is he will give it if we ask in faith. If you read on verse 6 and following there. If we are willing to give the Holy Spirit total control of our lives and are willing to act according to the wisdom God gives, asking in faith, James calls it there, if we're willing to do that, God will give us the wisdom we need. And so here in Acts chapter 23, we have an example of Paul doing that. He used spirit-guided wisdom in dealing with the situation that he was in. And God used that to further his plan. Now remember, some of God's plan was already revealed to Paul. He was going to preach the gospel in Rome. He knew that. God already told him that. Here he was on the verge of being put to death before he even got to Rome. But God's plan can't be stopped. God moves his plan along. And he often uses spirit-guided human wisdom to move his plan along. So, for us as Christians, today, the application for us is to make sure we are asking God for the wisdom we need. And that we are asking with an attitude of letting the Holy Spirit have control in our lives and a commitment to follow the wisdom God gives. And many times as we follow that God-given wisdom, God uses that to move his plan along. Moving on, secondly. God providentially guides and protects. So back to the story there in Acts 23. After Paul is removed from that hearing before the Sanhedrin, that night a plot is formed to kill him from ambush, as we read there verse 12 and following. But wouldn't you know it, Paul's nephew heard about this plot. We aren't told how he heard about it, there must have been some connection between Paul's family and some Jews in high places. But it just so happened that he heard about this plot. And he came and he told Paul. And Paul got him an audience with the Roman commander, who then took the action to, to spoil the plot. And just to be sure, he had Paul escorted out of town under a huge armed guard. Paul was protected, <laughs> and he got out of Jerusalem alive, and he was put under the care of Felix, the Roman governor himself. Now, how did Paul's nephew just happen to hear about this plot by the Jews to kill him from ambush? And what made that Roman commander view Paul's situation with, well, you have to conclude, with favor. He was looking with favor on Paul, wanted to rescue him out of this unjust treatment he was getting at the hand of the Jews. Why would the Roman commander look with what Paul was such favor? Even to the extent of devoting a large, I'm thinking, how many soldiers did he have there stationed in the barracks there in Jerusalem? that he would devote such a large part of his resources just to get Paul safely out of town. Why would he look at Paul with that kind of favor? Was it all circumstance and happenstance? Or is there something more behind it? 
I think we would all agree that obviously God's hand was in this all, in the whole thing. There was no miracle here in the sense, in the strict sense of the word, where God went above and beyond and the laws of nature and miraculously snatched Paul out of the situation and got him to... No, there's nothing like that. But obviously God did work in and through the natural circumstances to allow Paul's nephew to hear about the plot and for the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, to view Paul and his plight favorably. Obviously, God's hand is in that. God was, God was doing stuff there. God was at play. We call that God's providence. God's providence. Where God works behind the scenes, under the surface, to do what he wants done. No flashy miracle. Just God behind the scenes orchestrating things to move his plan along. God's providential care and guidance. We as Christians need to understand that about God. Because most of the time, his work is behind the scenes and underneath the surface. Where it can't really be seen. And we tend to think, when we're kind of up against it, we tend to think that he isn't doing anything. That God is not doing anything. And we get frustrated with God. And we get angry with God. We're hurting here. We're desperate. And we're crying to God. And God is just sitting there on his hands not doing anything. <laughs> That's what it feels like when you're in that situation. We need to remind ourselves that most of the time God uses his providence to guide and protect and to move his plan along. Meaning... Behind the scenes, under the surface, using the circumstances of life, using the actions of people, both Christians and non-Christians, using it all, putting it all together in a way that will bring things about that he has always intended to bring about. And he uses his providence to move his plan along. Thirdly and finally, God sometimes gives a special message of assurance. God sometimes gives a special message of assurance. I'm looking here specifically at verse 11. During the night, right after Paul made that statement before the Sanhedrin, and they all started riding with each other, and the Roman commander rescued him from that, brought him back to the, bar to the barracks. That night, during the night, Jesus appeared to Paul. Paul, at this point, he knew his life was in grave danger. He had no idea at this point how he was going to get out of it. Now, if Paul is anything like me, <laughs> it's during the night that my thoughts and imaginations tend to get going a bit wild. <laughs> I don't know if you're like that, but I'm like that. Uh, things that are bothering me get way more intense at night. When I'm partly asleep, but still wake enough to have these thoughts running through my mind. Fears and anxieties and hurts and uncertainties get way worse in the night when I'm in that state. 
that just me or is it? <laughs> okay, it's just me. <laughs> Maybe Paul's like that too. I don't know. <laughs> but in the night, I find it interesting that during the night when Jesus appeared to Paul with that special word of assurance, verse 11, but on that night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage for you, as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness in Rome also. God had already revealed to Paul, as we've seen before, that he was to go to Rome. Now Paul's sitting there in the barracks at night. His life's on the line. It's looking like he's not. He's going to be killed before he even gets to Rome. That's what it's looking like. But Paul, or Jesus, comes during the night and assures Paul that his plan is still in place. He was going to get to Rome. And he was going to preach the gospel in Rome. Paul, Jesus gave Paul that word of assurance. Notice Jesus did not give Paul any details about how he was going to get out of the mess he's in. Jesus didn't tell him that. He just told him, you're going to preach in Rome. That's all he told him. Didn't give him any details about how he was, should he do something to get out of the mess? Should he, what should he do? Or how he was going to do it? How God, Jesus didn't tell him how he was going to do it. All Jesus did was give him a word of assurance that his plan was still in place. He was moving his plan along and he would preach the gospel in Rome. The New Testament records four different occasions where the risen Jesus personally appeared to Paul. This is one of those four. And as we've seen several times before, right from we started with the book of Acts all the way through, we've seen uh, that there in the first years after Jesus rose from the dead and was getting his church up and running, uh, he used miracles and these kinds of special occurrences much more frequently than he did later on after his church was established and they had the New Testament in writing that they could, they could uh, have at their disposal. But God can and does give us his assurance in many different ways. Uh, and though, although it's highly unlikely that Jesus will appear to you like he did to Paul here, God is good at using different means to get his word of assurance to you when you need to hear it. Especially when it comes to the area of whether his plan is still in place or if it has changed. And sometimes we're having doubts about whether God can pull this off or not or whether God's plan is still in effect. Uh, we can't see anything happening, so we have these doubts. And God can use many different ways and means to give us the assurance we need that no, things are still going according to plan. By the way, um, don't mistake your desires for God's plan. <laughs> don't make that mistake. In this situation here in Acts 23, God's plan was to use Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentile world. Paul knew that. That's what God called him to do. That plan included... Paul getting to Rome, the capital of the empire, and preaching the gospel there in that very influential city. That had already been revealed to Paul. That's not what God wanted him to do. And Paul here received assurance that this plan of God had not changed. Jesus himself came to Paul and assured him that he was moving his plan along. He would get to Rome. That was God's plan, already revealed to Paul. This wasn't about any kind of personal desire on Paul's part. I find it interesting. There is one instance 
Well, I think it's only one. <laughs> Didn't really do a study on this, but there is one instance recorded in the New Testament where Paul did earnestly beseech God regarding a personal desire of his. Some of you know what I'm talking about. <coughs> Paul had a problem. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was. But it was something that bothered Paul an awful lot. <laughs> it really bothered Paul. Caused major grief in his life. And that story's in Corinthians. And Paul relates to us there that he earnestly entreated God three times to remove that thorn from him. And Jesus basically told Paul, uh, no. <laughs> no, Paul, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to remove it. I have a reason for it being there. I will not remove it. You just keep on doing what I called you to do and my grace will be sufficient for you. That was God's answer to Paul when he earnestly prayed about a sincere desire that he had, personal desire. The point is, don't, don't confuse your personal desires for God's plan. It may not be the same thing. God's plan, friends, if we look back up to look at God's overreaching plan, overall plan, God's plan is to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out to all people of the world. That's God's plan. You and I each have a role to play in that plan. And that being that we share the gospel of Jesus to the people who are in our circles, who are in our lives. And God will move his plan along. As we submit to God's plan, as we seek to do our part, there may be times when we wonder in that, is God's plan still in play? doesn't seem to be much happening. God's plan still in play? Has God changed it? And if, if and when we need some assurance, God will find a way to give us that assurance that we need. Friends, if God has clearly shown you what he wants you to do and what his plan is for you in advancing his kingdom, then go with it. If God has showed you what it is, go with it. There may be times when, like Paul, it looks like the devil is winning and he's going to stop this plan of God's. Uh, when you need it most, Jesus will find a way to give you the assurance that you need. And God will, with that assurance, continue to move his plan along. So therefore we see from this passage some ways by which God moves his plan along. There, number one, God often uses spirit-guided wisdom, human wisdom. Number two, God providentially guides and protects in working behind the scenes to, to guide things and to protect those he needs to protect to keep his plan going. And number three, God sometimes gives a special message of assurance. So, wrapping it all up. God has a plan, friend. God has a plan. A plan to advance his kingdom and to get the message of the gospel out to those who need to hear it. As a Christian, you are part of that plan. God, within that overall plan, has a plan for you individually that works to keep that overall plan going. What is God's plan for you, friend? I'm talking to all of you. Kids, we've got teens here. 
adults, seniors. What's God's plan for you? Enter into it. Enter into that plan. And know, as you do that, that God will, by these and others, move His plan along. God is sovereign. His plans cannot be stopped. He will move His plans along. And as Christians, He has a role for us to play in that. I can't tell each of you individually what your individual role is or what God's individual plan for you is as an individual. I can't say that. God will show you as you seek his face. But it will have to do with getting the message of the gospel out to the people who need to hear it. We all have a circle of friends that we are with or people that seem to God has put in our lives somehow and we kind of bump into quite regularly. How does that fit into this? Why is God putting these people in your lives? I'm thinking God's plan for you has something to do with that. And even if he guides you, I'm thinking of our teens here. Sorry, teens, I'm picking on you. <laughs> even as you're at this point thinking about your future and what vocation should I get into and where should I go to school, all, all those things. It's all part of God's plan, but beneath it all, it's not about what vocation you have, it's about getting you into the circle of people who need to hear the gospel. That's the underwriting lesson in it all. God has a plan that can't be stopped. As Christians, he has a role for us to play in that. So as we think about this, let's just take a time of silence once again. I'll just give you a few moments and just in the quietness of your own heart, just let this all soak in. Think about it and open your heart to what is God saying to me personally here this morning? What's God's word for me personally? I'll just give you a few moments. Let's stand and sing together.